Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. Each week, we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy. Plus, you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so let us bring the learning to you. Click on Claim CE Credit in the show notes below. Now let's welcome your host, Jeff Wall, as he discusses this week's clinical practice game changers. Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, how you doing? Hope things are going well uh, where you are and in your world. Uh, things are actually, knock on wood, going pretty good here from a, a COVID perspective. Hopefully that's the same where you're going as well. Thanks for listening. You know, this uh, uh, podcast is, is kind of dedicated to giving listeners, both providers and pharmacists, the latest information when it comes to drug therapy. And we try to be kind of Johnny on the spot about that. And so we appreciate you listening. Today, we're going to talk about a paper that was just recently published that has been a bee in my bonnet, and I expect to be in a lot of pharmacists' bonnets for, for a, lot, a long time, and that's generic substitution of uh, levothyroxine products. And of course, you know, there's a million rabbit holes you can go down talking about this sort of stuff, but, but this paper in particular looks at patients who have switched between generic manufacturers, right? So as we all know, when somebody gets a generic a drug for whatever condition they're on, they may not get the same brand generic. A lot of it just depends on what is, what is available for the pharmacy and, and what, what the price differential or contracts are and things like that. So even though, you know, there is generic versus name brand, there are several, in some, some cases, dozens of generic manufacturers making a particular agent. And one month it may be Myelin, the next month it may be Sandoz, the next month it may be another uh, manufacturer of, of levothyroxine. And of course, community pharmacists listening to my voice are nodding their heads because um, I, I, I shudder to think how many phone calls they get from, from uh, patients going, uh, this isn't the same color as my last one is are you sure it's the same one and they check me up ma'am it's it's a different generic you know they have the little sticker sometimes saying this is a, a new version of the product and stuff but, but i'm sure they get a lot of phone calls about that so this study actually took a look at this from a more uh, scientific perspective and to help me kind of break it down i am uh, very pleased to welcome dr jamie pitlick to the show uh, dr pitlick is a uh, colleague of mine at drake who uh, actually works in an endocrinology office so uh, jamie welcome to the program Thank you. Yeah, like Jeff said, I'm Dr. Jamie Pitlick, Associate Professor at Drake. Currently, I've got a practice site at Iowa Diabetes, which is little endocrinology office in Des Moines. So working a bunch with patients with diabetes, but also hit other endocrinology disorders as well. Uh, I appreciate being here. Again, your expertise is going to be key here. You know, endocrine is, is always one of those things where I think, you know, practitioners like myself and things, you know, we, we kind of dabble, but, but we fully realize that when you start getting into some of this stuff, we need we need the expertise of people like you. So I appreciate you being on the program. So, you know, before we get started talking about the paper, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording that the, the whole notion of bioequivalence between the uh, L-thyroxine products has been uh, at least as long as I've been a pharmacist and God help me, that's coming up on 30 years this this year, a contentious subject. And in, in fact, in the early 1990s, uh, at the time, there was only really, you know, the, the Synthroid brand that was out. And there was a couple of new generics that just kind of hit the market. And I think that one of the classic stories that many of you know about, but I think maybe some of you don't, was at the time, a, a professor at the uh, University of California, San Francisco named Betty Dong had basically agreed with the manufacturer of Synthroid to do a study actually taking a look at the bioequivalence of the name brand Synthroid versus uh, the one or two generics that were out at that time. And she conducted a study um, and basically found that at that time, there was no 
difference in TSH levels. And she looked at absorption and things like that too, and found there was no difference between the Synthroid brand and the one or two generics that were out. And she went to go publish her data and the manufacturer of Synthroid said, nope, we're not going to let you publish the data because at that time there was not guarantee of, of independent control of, of, of studies. And so it was kind of a watershed case. There was a thing on in 60 Minutes, I remember years and years ago, and it's probably on YouTube someplace at this time now, where you can go back and take a look at it, where she basically sued uh, uh, the manufacturer of, of Synthroid and said, well, you can't do that. I mean, you can't, you can, just because the, the study didn't come out the way you wanted it to, doesn't mean you can't, you know, you can't get it from published. And she finally got it published uh, years and years after the fact because of, of, of the legal wrangling that went along with this. So it's kind of a fascinating uh, case from kind of a historical process. And so unfortunately, that didn't solve the question. And, and to this day, there are, there are, I think, both prescribers and patients and probably pharmacists too, who wonder about, you know, gee, you know, this is a drug that has a relatively narrow therapeutic index. I mean, you know, the range of the TSH is kind of somewhere between, you know, 0.5 and 5 in most cases, you know. And so, you know, if, if people are taking different branded forms or, or different manufacturer forms of it, is the swing in TSH going to be enough that that it could be a problem? And so I, I think to this day, we still get questions about that. And that doesn't even get into, and we talked about this before the recording as well, is, you know, that doesn't even get into the patients who want to be on quote unquote natural thyroid who basically demand armor thyroid and other types of non-levothyroxine products and stuff like that. I mean, that's a whole other podcast you could get into, but basically, you know, suffice it to say that, that there's still some question about this. And unfortunately, it isn't helped with the fact that the last update from the American Thyroid Association, which was in 2014, basically said that while they didn't recommend the name brand of Synthroid, they basically said that once you are on a particular brand of levothyroxine, you need to stay in that brand, whether it's generic or earning brand. So if you're on the Myelin brand of L-thyroxine, the ATA basically says you should stay on that and the pharmacy should make it so that that's how it happens. The problem, of course, is that that's difficult to do. Again, the staff pharmacist and community pharmacy doesn't have the ability always to order the same brand for everybody. They may be out one time or there may be some other issues where they just can't get that that same generic. So unfortunately, it becomes, it becomes very challenging. Not to mention the fact that if they did that for every single patient, for every single drug that falls under this kind of questioning, you know, you'd have to double the size of the pharmacy because you have to have like, you know, 67 different generic formulations of a lot of drugs. So it just doesn't work out very good. So what this study did kind of talks a little bit about the stuff we've just talked about. The ATA basically says, stay on one manufacturer's product. Don't switch products between them. They note that this is still really common that about 25 million individuals were prescribed L-thyroxine in, in 2016, which is pretty much astounding to me. So, I mean, that means that means that hypothyroidism is, is even way more common than I even thought. That's a significant segment of the population. So this is very common. I've always known that levothyroxine products were in always in the top 20 most prescribed prescriptions. But when you see 25 million people taking L-thyroxine, that kind of slaps you in the face, realizing this is a pretty common issue. So what the authors of the study did is they said, well, you know, we, there's still some, some controversy going on here. So how are we going to deal with this? And so what they decided to do was take a look at a gigantic database study uh, where they compared the efficacy and safety of generic L-thyroxine between people who did and did not switch manufacturers. So basically, they wanted to look at two arms. They wanted to look at patients who basically stayed on one brand, whether it was the name brand or a single generic uh, manufacturer, or people who had who switched between manufacturers. And they wanted to see what the implications were, particularly of switching generic levothyroxine products on TSH. And that was their primary outcome was, was TSH, which we all agree is, is the standard way to measure uh, biochemically how people are doing with their hypothyroid status. So like many of these studies, it was a 
large retrospective comparative effectiveness research study, and they use the Optum Labs data warehouse, which is a huge database that has over dozens of uh, data points looking at, at commercially insured and Medicare Advantage enrollees in the United States. So you're able to get a ton of data when you look at the Optum Data's warehouse, age, what region they're in, what gender, race they are, socioeconomic status, um, and again, the prescriptions that they get filled, and they have the NDCs of those prescriptions, so they're able to target exactly which manufacturer made you know, X drug, basically. They included patients over 18 who filled a generic L-thyroxine preparations from the, any of the three most common manufacturers, so Myelin, Sandoz, and I have to admit, I've never heard of Lanet Pharmaceuticals, but I guess that's, that's, that's one. That, that is common now. And they look at a fairly large range between January 2008 and January 30th, 2019. They included new and prevalent users. And so now they had to kind of figure out how are they going to, you know, divide this, this gigantic uh, database into the two groups they wanted to study. So first, they wanted to shrink that number down so that you had to be taking L-thyroxine for at least 12 months after the first fill date in the study period. So at least one year. And then they looked at patients who continuously use the same source generic L-thyroxine preparation, the index date was then randomly assigned to a fill date within one year of the first fill date you know, after having been on the same preparation. So basically, they just basically in that first year randomly took a time and said, since you're taking the same medication this whole period, we're just going to pick a random time to start the, the clock for you basically with this study. And then for patients who switched between uh, levothyroxine preparations, uh, they basically just randomly assigned the index date based on the date of the first switch. So they were able to say, okay, well, you went from Myland on in January to Sandoz in, uh, in July. So that's the point that we're going to start um, uh, measuring and seeing what's going on. Basically, they needed to have at least three months of, of constant uh, generic L-thyroxine use with a stable dose and stable manufacturer and at least one available TSH HREML in the normal range. So these weren't patients who were being adjusted. These were, these were maintenance patients who had basically been on a stable dose for a period of time and weren't having adjustments made because their TSH wasn't in the, in the actual range. Then required to have at least 12 months of continuous medical and, and pharmacy benefits to then capture TSH levels that, are, uh, that were available after one year, and then use that to basically tie it to the manufacturer after the first TSH was drawn. So in other words, was there a difference between the first TSH they got and then the at least this sec this follow-up one after they had switched or if they had stayed on the same manufacturer of levothyroxine. They excluded patients who were pregnant, who were diagnosed with other endocrine things like hypopituitarism or hypothyroidism. They also excluded patients who were on medications that could affect TSHs and uh, that could be and that included things like you know amiodarone and things along those lines, lithium, stuff like that. In addition, they excluded patients who used other forms of, of thyroid replacement therapy. And so again, it kind of gets into the stuff we talked about at the beginning. People are using T3 or people are using thyroid desiccated. So again, animal-based thyroid like Armour Thyroid or Nature Thyroid. And so specifically, they excluded patients who had brands of Cytomil, which is the name brand of T3, Armour Thyroid or Nature Thyroid, which are kind of the, the uh, desiccated thyroid products that are on the market right now. They then, uh, since they had all these data points to take a look at, they adjusted for baseline characteristics including age, sex, race, ethnicity, what region they were in, a physician speciality, which I think was, was a good idea. So they took a look at whether uh, patients were seeing a PCP, whether they're seeing an endocrinologist or another specialist, the length of stable thyroxine dose before the index date, uh, what type of health plan they were on. They did calculate a Charleston comorbidity index. And, and those of you know that this is kind of a way to look at general acuity of patients. In other words, what their, what their total disease burden is. And the higher the number, the, the means really the, the more uh, chronic disease 
diseases you basically have. And that was uh, looking at, at ICD-9s and ICD-10s, trying to get that number down. They then adjusted for TSH level at baseline, L-thyroxine dose, which was calculated based on fill data, and then any other conditions that may affect L-thyroxine dose, including malabsorption, like patients who might have inflammatory bowel disease they adjusted for, or people who are taking concomitant iron, which of course, you know, we should be taking concomitant iron with any L-thyroxine uh, as well. And then they divvied up the cohort into, into three outcomes. They wanted to look at the proportion of patients after the switch or who stayed on who had a normal TSH in the normal range and abnormal and markedly abnormal uh, TSHs after that, that, that first switch had been done. And, and I'll give you the numbers that count for that uh, as it was. They count markedly abnormal as greater than 10. Um, and it's worth noting that generally that is considered, and the American Thyroid Association says this too, that, that generally when your TSH is above 10, that's generally considered abnormal enough that, that you really probably should make adjustments in, in, in their L-thyroxine dose. In my world, in, in the hospital, that's something I'm, I'm kind of uh, kind of working with my, my physicians on because often someone will come in to the hospital with, with some sort of acute, acute illness. We'll check a TSH for XYZ reasons and it'll be six or seven and they'll want to go up on their on their L-thyroxine and I have to kind of remind them that, that you know basically this is probably thyroid six syndrome and that unless your TSH is above 10, that we probably don't need to adjust their L-thyroxine basically. So the stats, as you might imagine for this kind of study was, was pretty complex. They did a propensity score matching analysis, which kind of makes sense. Uh, and they developed this, this uh, model that counted all the things we just talked about, basically all the, all these data points, and then used logistic regression with a binary outcome of either the people who continued the same sourced L-thyroxine product versus switching the L-thyroxine product. And again, a wide uh, number of covariants in this model, basically. As far as the results are concerned, uh, the baseline about most of these patients had a baseline TSH that was in the normal range of 2.2. Mean age was 58, as you might imagine, because this is hypothyroidism, the majority of patients were women, and about 70% uh, were white, and the vast majority were PCP prescribed. In fact, uh, less than uh, 20% of the patients were seen an endocrinologist or other specialists. So they ended up including 15,829 patients who filled generic L-thyroxine between January 1st, 2008 and January 30, 2019. And again, remember, they broke this up into, into cohorts of patients who had normal, abnormal, and markedly abnormal. So they counted normal as 0.3 to 4.4 uh, mil IUs for per liter, abnormal uh, less than 0.3 or greater than 0.4, and then markedly abnormal less than 0.1 or greater than 10. And when they look at those, those uh, uh, segments, they found no difference. So they found basically that when you take a look at non-switchers versus switchers after that first uh, a TSH uh, after the switch or continuing, 82% of patients in the non-switcher group were in the normal TSH range compared to 84 actually percent of, of switchers. And so a very small net difference is certainly not clinically significant. And because of the numbers, they their p-value is 0.07, but that's again, it, it, you know, that's just because they had a high number of patients in the study. Uh, patients who had abnormal uh, TSHs, that 17.3 in the in the non-switchers versus 15. Point three in the switchers, again, uh, not clinically uh, different. And then the markedly abnormal, 3.1% of patients who did not switch were markedly abnormal compared to only 2.5% of the switchers. So again, not clinically significant. Um, and the mean TSH in both groups was 2.7. So uh, what they basically found in the raw data was no difference. Then when they did a sensitivity analysis using a TSH levels between six and 12 weeks after the index date, they found, again, almost exactly the same information that around 83% of 
patients in both the non-switcher group and the switcher group were in the normal TSH range after the switch, uh, and that the same numbers were mar uh, in the abnormal and markedly abnormal group, and that mean TSH level change from baseline was 0.44 in the non-switcher group and 0.67 in the switcher group. So not, again, not clinically significant. So the authors basically say that their data does not support the fact that the, the recommendations of the 2014 ATA guidelines saying that patients need to stay on one uh, generic manufacturer. So again, I appreciate my colleague, Dr. Jamie Pitlick, uh, being on, on the show with us. So Jamie, you've read the study. What's your take on it? And what, you know, again, you, you work in endocrine, endocrinology. And certainly it's been my experience that if, if, if any physicians kind of get bent out of shape about this, it tends to be endocrinologists. So yeah. interested to hear what you think about it. And if you, if, if any of your colleagues have talked about this. We have not had a meeting or any discussion about it, but my take is, you know, most people, it's going to be okay to use generic. There's not that variability at, reflected in the TSH. And I think it, it maybe assures people that the generic versions are okay. We can use them, we can safely use them, and there's not going to be huge clinical effects. So I love that, that we right. can able safely tell patients this. Right. You know, and, and, and the, and the switching between generics, it's, it's interesting. I, and the last big brouhaha I had to deal with this was not actually with l but was actually with uh, anticonvulsants. Uh, we had a, at, here at Methodist, we had a neurologist who was a real good guy. I like him, but he felt pretty strongly, you know, kind of like the ATA says, but in his world, he's like, look, if you're on the myelin brand of this anticonvulsant, I want you on the myelin brand of this anticonvulsant forever, you know? And of course, people don't realize that the community pharmacist who works at Walgreens, he doesn't often or she doesn't often have a say on that. It's like, look, you know, I order what the, what the, what the wholesalers got and we get it. I, I don't know what you want me to do sort of thing. So yeah. what's kind of your take on that? And then, you know, have you had these, I'm sure you have had these conversations with patients before, you know, what, what's, what's kind of been your strategy to talk to them about it? Well, the majority of patients are just going based on what their doctor is recommending. Right. I would say the majority. I've even had conversations where patients didn't even realize had never been offered the generic and they're like, yeah, I'd be okay with the generic as long wow. as it didn't affect my TSH. Right. And that was somebody I was working on a prior authorization that I could not get because there wasn't enough clinical evidence in the chart to justify that they needed the brand name. And I just I could not get it. Right. Ended up being able to switch that one after a quick discussion with the endocrinologist and the patient was able to switch them to generic. That's good. Yeah. You know, it does make you wonder, like if, if you're a community pharmacist and you have a core to these patients, do you have a copy of this paper, you know, and, and maybe kind of break it down in kind of, you know, patient friendly language and say, look, you know, here's what, here's what the latest study shows. But again, you know, like you said, a lot of times they're just going to go, Hey, look, this is what my doctor told me. I, you know, all I know is what my doctor told me. And, and I get that. And so, you know, one wonders how do we convince, you know, prescribers who just, who, who have to heretofore basically said, no, I want my patient on X drug. You know, mm -hmm. you give you give them this information. So what's your opinion on that? Well, if you actually look at the guidelines, the ATA guidelines from 2014, there's two different recommendations in there that talk about this brand to generic switch and then the generic to generic switch. Right. Both of them are labeled as low quality evidence and weak. Okay. okay. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny how, how in, in guidelines, you know, and, and I think you and I have fought this before over the years that could be an expert opinion in a in, yeah. you know, right level of evidence in the guideline, but they, but a lot of people, Hey, it's in the guidelines. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but it, there's no evidence to support this. And they say but that they, right in the guidelines. You know? And yeah, they exactly. say that. Yeah. yeah exactly. In, in, in one of the recommendations, it says, you know, there's 
two studies that say there's a slight difference and there's like four studies that say there is no difference in these products. And it's like, so it's really weak evidence. Um, you've got to make your clinical judgment. Um, what I really like is where they specifically talk about brand name to generic. They say anybody who keeping the TSH level at a critical level, like we do not want them going out of their range or right. um, somebody who has history of thyroid cancer. And if we let their TSH rise, there's a risk of the cancer coming back. Right. Now, those right. patients maybe need to stay on the same brand of generic or maybe the keeping them on brand just because it's critical for their health right. versus somebody who maybe has a little bit of thyroid function has your standard hypothyroidism. If their values fluctuate a little bit, it's okay. Right. It is important to point out. I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to rah-rah this study just because it, it meets my confirmation bias, but, but, you know, I mean, it is important and, and you deal with this, I think much more than I do that, you know, yes, there's going to be individual patients who probably are really sensitive. It's like, you know, well, you know, look, my hair's starting to fall out or, you know, my, you know, my, my skin's getting really dry, you know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, your TSH theoretically only went from like, you know, one to three, that's in the normal range. Well, that, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think individual patients were obviously going to have to take a look at that as well, but, you know, yes, I agree with you that you know, the majority of patients will probably do fine, you know, on, on any generic and, and so like that. It's worth noting, as you point out in the paper, that they excluded, you know, patients who had a history of hyperthyroidism or had thyroid cancer and stuff like that, because you're right there. That's something that you want to be a little more cautious about. I think they were really trying to hit the people who basically, you know, had, you know, probably Hashimoto's and, and that does that they're, they're thyroid and, and that there's that there's very little left. So in your world, do you think that your endocrinologists kind of take a look at, you know, there, there's kind of a kind of a bifurcation there. So they've got the patient who had thyroid cancer and got their thyroid chopped out or mm -hmm. had had hyperthyroidism and had I-131 versus just the person who was just over time, their TSH rose up to 20 and hey, you've got hypothyroidism. Do they kind of take a look at those patients differently, do you think? You know, I, I think they definitely do. And think about it. I mean, the people that are uh, practitioners are seen are generally the ones that PCPs or generalists refer to them. Right. Right? right. So we get the patients that are more sensitive. We get the patients who have all those complicated histories. And even the endocrinologists that I'm working with more often than not are still prescribing generic. It's when after generic, if levels are adjusting, they're complaining of being symptomatic, then they start to go more towards the brand name. Okay. But more often than not, I mean, I, I think I work in a great practice because I'm not fighting um, necessarily all of those battles. Just one of, of a lot, I'm sure that you have to deal with as well. Not to catch on the spot there. I know I've gotten a, a couple of questions. I know there's a, a relatively new thyroid product on the market. It doesn't like have like wheat in it. So it's like gluten-free and it's better absorbed and all that because I've, it's like tri-set or something like that. I don't know if you've seen that. I've gotten a couple of questions about that over the last two or three years. And it's just like, you know, again, you know, it, it seems like, you know, yeah, there might be the very, very rare patient who'd benefit from that. But on the whole, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, it's like, it sounds like somebody is, is developed a, a, a answer to a problem that just largely doesn't exist. And what I take away from this study is that, you know, the vast, 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 vast majority of patients, you know, can switch between generics and really not have a lot of problems. But, but, I, you know, yeah, you don't want to use this as the end all be all and say, you know, you know, there will be the occasional patient that we really should at least try to maintain, you know, some continuity 
in, in, the, in what manufacturers they're using, whether again, it's, it's, you know, Synthroid name brand or probably more commonly, you know, okay, can we just stay on the Myelin brand of this and, and, yeah. and things along those lines. So yeah, I agree with that. So other thoughts or comments about this paper or what you think? No, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It, um, I think it, assures many pharmacists, many providers that we can utilize levothyroxine, the generic, and feel comfortable that we can maintain people's TSH levels and therapeutically keep them within range. Yep, I agree. So now someone just needs to do a study with this and uh, desiccate it thoroughly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It, it, again, it's it's a bee in my bonnet, and I, I'm the first to admit it. You know, at my age, there's a lot of soapboxes I want to stand up on and scream about. And you know, when I have patients who you know, I'll get drug information questions from from the DI center about, well, this patient insists on being this. I've had to have that conversion so many times. I've got it memorized because I mean, well, my patients on you know this dose of L-thyrox, they want to go to Armour. So what, what's the conversion? And I mean, you know, I used to have to look it up all the time, and I've had to do it so many times I just haven't memorized and it's worth noting that 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 you know, you know levothyroxine really is the thyroid preparation we should be using in almost all patients you know and that's the problem with desiccated thyroid is you're literally chopping up a pig's thyroid and, and giving it to a patient and you just don't know how much t4 and t3 are in there and they, they, they really can't codify the process to make it the same in every pill it's one of those things that I kind of bang my head against the wall about but it's like you know it is what it is so but well like I said I, I appreciate it Jamie thank Thank you so much for, for being here. Um, as always, we'll probably pick your brain in the future with other endocrinology things, probably a little more, probably more diabetes stuff, more in the stuff that you love, I know, so that, that we'll try and do more diabetes stuff. But again, thank you so much for, for, for joining us in this episode of Game Changers. Thank you. Happy to be on. Happy to help. I appreciate it. So that's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. Again, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening then. Claim your CE credit by clicking on the link in the show notes and check out CE Impact's other education at ceimpact.com, where we curate the most important information in pharmacy and medicine to deliver straight to you. Join today to connect your learning to practice.